Welcome back to Jonesing for Jessica. This is going to be the show that's discussing Marvel and Netflix, Jessica Jones, uh, latest live action adaptation from Marvel, and next to one of their comic book characters in real life. Uh, we've discussed the first ep- uh, two episodes, and we're going episode by episode. So the third one is up, uh, dubbed AKA, it's called Whiskey. And like every episode, we've got a cool guest joining us. But before I introduce her, I want to introduce my co-host, Alana. How you doing? And what do we have on tap oh, for this one? I'm great. I'm great. I've been really looking forward to having Amanda Marcotte joining us. We'll be doing her bio real quick. And just for folks who are new to the show, um, each episode we focus on one episode of the series. Uh, we do our darndest, and I believe we have been successful thus far, uh, to avoid any spoilers of future episodes. But anything from episode one, two, or three is fair game here. Um, and we want our podcast to be uh, friendly to both comics readers and non-comics readers and everybody who's getting on board and enjoying this show. So, yes, there you have it. very important. Uh, so, as I said, we have a guest. We've, we've had a cool guest for every single one. We've got another brand new person who has never been on any of our shows before. Um, Alana introduced uh, Amanda Marcotte, who's a political writer for Salon. In the past, she's covered liberal politics and feminism for Slate, Rolling Stone, USA Today, and many other publications. Uh, we'll tweet her out so I don't have to read her Twitter uh, handle right now, but her interests include Game of Thrones, vinyl collecting, comic books, mostly Marvel. Uh, though she points out she was Batgirl for Halloween, and obviously Jessica Jones, because she's here talking about it. Um, Amanda, welcome <laughs> to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I guess... We, we've asked all our guests just to kind of get a clue of where they're at with their knowledge of the character. Like, have you read any of the Jessica Jones comics or any comics with the character uh, before seeing the show? Yeah, um, the main one being I've read the the Alias books. I read it a couple of months ago before the show aired. Ah, so you're fresh. Yes, <laughs> on, on the brain. I, I have my copy sitting right here. Gotcha. Yeah, I um made inadvertently made the decision that I wasn't going to reread them immediately prior to the show because I'm really busy (laughs) covering new comics. Um, But I I have read them before and Brett has read them. And I think Brett is also like myself, like did not do a reread of everything, but Brett has watched the entire series and has done little mini reviews on our website for each episode. So, yeah. yeah, um, So I take it you're enjoying the show so far, Amanda. Yeah, um, I I watched all of it kind of in one weekend binge, um, and now and I rewatched the episode that we're talking about tonight um, yesterday, so it was fresh on my brain. I, I love this show. I've, I'm I'm probably going to be more gushy than some of your other guests about it. <laughs> well, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Great. Yeah, we want to get a range of different opinions. Well, what, what what do you feel like are the main reasons that the show is so great? Well, I think for me, it's just incredibly effective in the same way that the book was. But, uh, well, I'm, they're both effective and in different ways, I would argue. But very, very effective, I think, at really diving deep on on its subject matter, which is using um, the tropes of superhero comics and shows to explore an issue that gets explored or gets talked about a lot in mainstream media, but very rarely gets explored with any intelligence or depth. And that's, you know, violence against women and abuse and sexual assault. And I I find, you know, I find that they get it on this level that I've almost never really seen in a mainstream media product before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's funny. Yes. When, when, when it wants to be as well. (laughs) What do you feel like most media gets gets wrong when they're doing like fictional narratives around issues like rape and 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 consent and stuff like that? Well, one of the things I think this show gets that a lot of other places don't is I think there's a tendency in a lot of shows and movies to portray because they want because they acknowledge it it's well intended because they know about the prejudice against domestic violence and rape victims there's a tendency to try to make them seem nicer than they maybe are 
or mm-hmm. more helpless or more perfect. They, they, there's a tendency to make them angelic victims or to make their suffering pure and unnuanced. And, you know, that has a way of sort of flattening out the experience. And I think while it's well-intended, it often makes it harder in the real world for victims because they aren't perfect little angels. And they often find it hard to get sympathy because they're not perfect little angels. Mm-hmm. Nobody's a good enough victim to be seen as pure. It's funny because, like, what was, you know, Luke Cage certainly says, uh, you know, everybody's a mix of both, and it sort of depends where you wake up in the morning. Um, that was sort of his, I guess, take on the nuances of, of people. But, yeah, like, I, I, I definitely, you know, it's great to see a great flawed hero in this show who's, you know, a victim of stuff but also a survivor and also a good person and also has problems. Like, she has many things about her. She's not one thing. Yeah, I, when I took some notes on this episode for this, and one thing that struck me was that they're good at kind of using symbolism to talk about stuff that is often hard to portray directly on screen. And one thing, for instance, is that domestic violence victims often become extremely un- unpleasant people when they're in the relationship. Like, they they become, they because they feel weird shame and guilt and and also their head is being messed with on a daily basis. They are often kind of chaotic, mean to their friends. Um, They do things that other people don't understand, and they push people away. And this often makes it even harder for them to get the help that they need. And I think that things like Hope Schlotman, like shooting her parents, like literally, Uh is an interesting way to kind of portray that. Like the very people that are trying to help you, sometimes the victim without even wanting to, really will will push them away. Wow, that's a really great point about that. I hadn't phrased it that way. That's 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 excellent. Uh, you know, one of my friends is a social worker, and all of her clients are women uh, who are incarcerated. And she says that, like, basically every single woman she has ever worked with in her many years as a social worker in prison is a victim of abuse. Like, period. You know, Doesn't so if you think me. about, like, yeah, exactly. I mean, especially since it's so common to be a victim of abuse, period, anyway. Um, so, you know, it doesn't surprise me then that people are going around criticizing, like, people who are victims because they, like, are full human beings who have good and, and bad things just like the rest of us do. So I just think, like, looking at how people's lives are reflected by the, the metaphors of this, like, I think, you know, I, I, I don't know. It just, it seems pretty on the nose for me here. But, so, you know, so, I think uh, in a good way. Yeah, exactly. Like on the nose in a good way, not like in a trying too hard or too obvious sort of a way. I, I mean, I guess I could see somebody feeling like it's a bit over the head, but I really don't think, I, I'm sorry, like it's a bit um, hitting people over the head with some of the metaphors, but I don't think it is at all because it's not, a lot of them are not ones that I've seen structured this way before and certainly not with the kind of nuance that you see here um so i let's maybe start by going through the episode chronologically um unless there's any other really big scenes that you want to bring up right now and obviously feel free to reflect on anything as we go but um this episode rather famously now uh starts with what i believe to be the first like super powered sex scene I've seen at least in the TV show or movie. Yeah, I would also say the first Marvel interracial relationship for the live action heaven, isn't it? Oh no, shit! Really? Mm. I'm well. I'm, try, I'm like trying to think, and I can't think of another. They don't have many relationships, though. I think they've yeah, only <laughs> the movies have only just started to even stick a toe into the soap operatic. Um, aspect of Marvel Comics. Yeah, the chip, good point. Chipping doesn't count either. So, what was I saying? Yeah, but, it, but Brett, you, you watch more superhero movies than I do because you're willing to watch bad ones. Have there yeah. been any, like, other superpower-fueled sex scenes in movies from any, like, I don't care if it's a DC, Marvel, or like some property I had never heard of? Mm. Not that. Uh, uh, watch Shield, I don't watch Shield. 
Um, no. Not that I can think of. I was going to jokingly say, you know, not counting the the, the super power, uh, superhero porn spoofs. I can't think of any. Oh, yes, exactly. No, I'm not <laughs> counting that. I'm talking about in a, in, a, in a product that's intended for mass consumption. Well, I guess porn is consented for mass consumption. Whatever. You know what I'm saying. I, I don't think <laughs> they have sex scenes in any other Marvel product. Even Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., it has in it has intra superhero relationships, but I, I don't think it has sex scenes. No, I mean there's is like there not, a there's lot of flirting. I thought there was, but there isn't. I don't think. I don't think so. I mean, there was oh, okay. a lot of flirting so and there was hinting at some stuff, but I don't think they. I mean, they never really showed anything. Okay, so then this is Marvel's first sex scene and also first super powered sex scene. Um, but and I a lot of sex like, in this episode. Yes, this is true because they are they are having a good time. Um, yeah. I mean, my my you know my my first thoughts upon seeing it was like it was such a great moment to have like two people who are strong appreciating and celebrating that with each other, um, and they you know they have a sort of fascination with each other because they've never had an experience with somebody else with powers before. But it's also just like. I don't know. It's nice to see a sex scene that doesn't play by such stereotypical gender roles. Well, there was yeah, this. I was saying there's ahead, some sorry. people because I want to hear both your opinions on this, and I'm going to kind of go with this. Is um, to your a lot of your question. A, a couple of folks that I have talked to, and I've heard this all from, from the women I've talked to, uh, uh-huh. all from women that I've talked to, is going from the last episode where Luke is you know sawing his abdomen. To the, uh-huh. like immediately jumping him, um, like I've heard from multiple women have been like, I don't see how that was sexy and how I would immediately want to jump the person. Whereas what? my take, yeah, well, my take of it was like she's clearly been holding back in yes. her sex, and now she knows she doesn't have to, so she's going for it. Yes, yes, I, I, yeah. I yes. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Amanda. <laughs> Oh, no, no, I was just agreeing. Uh, yeah, no. And also, come on, look at him. He's, like, insanely hot. Like, he could probably pick <laughs> yeah. his nose and he'd still just jump on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the shape on both levels. I mean, if you can imagine feeling like you have to police yourself because of your powers all the time and you can't ever really let go, like, to actually be able to let go, it's, like, a huge moment, you know? Um, I'm amazed I, all they did was break the bed. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought the wall. I kind of when when they're gripping the wall, the the um the molding around the wall, it was like that molding around the wall is going to shatter. It did yeah. not, which means that headboard. whoever built the well, no, the headboard doesn't. Yeah, the headboard doesn't actually break, but the, the molding when they're rubbing the molding, I'm like, I mean, this is a New York apartment. The walls are made out of tissue paper and glue, so I was surprised that the wall that the, the non-load bearing <laughs> wall didn't entirely collapse because that would have been the case with even normal human sex in most apartments I've lived in, but. Nonetheless, um, yeah, like it's a pre-war I, 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 building. I, exactly, it's a pre-war building. So I, I should tell you about the time we drilled a hole in the wall to put in shelves, and we found newspapers from the 1940s were shoved in the wall with insulation. Oh my gosh! Look <laughs> this jumping died. <laughs> Thanks, Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Thanks again. So anyway, um, but yeah, I. I no, I, I thought that the sex scene was really fantastic. Uh, I mean, my, you know, I had a moment of being like, they're just, no, okay, no one's stopping for a condom, okay, well, keep going. Um, but other than that, like, you know, it was, it was like, great to see, like, this was sort of an immediate mutual attraction. I was really happy that, they, that the show, like, used, like, let them use their powers because that's actually, like, the narratively significant part of the sex piece. And... Oh, I didn't even mention. Okay, so she, like, literally rips off his shirt, which is such a great inversion of, like, traditional superhero, like, you know, stereotypes that you would have had, or, or Tarzan or any kind of, like, you she know. Ma- uh, his hands against the wall, which is a nice yes. flip. And he smiles well, really big. They're pushing each other. He does. He absolutely does. And they're both pushing and testing each other the whole time very playfully. I I also, um, and also he goes to rip off her shirt and she stops him, which I interpret as like, yeah, that is actually Jessica's only shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I, you know, I love my... the sex scene. <laughs> I, I love the sex scene because I, I one thing about sex scenes, they're often accused of being gratuitous, and they often are. And this was just the opposite of that. And I, people misuse that word a lot to mean like... Um, like blatant or you know explicit or something what it means is pointless to the plot or characterization or something right or doesn't mm-hmm. advance the story in any way whereas this was like a great non-gratuitous sex scene this you learn so much about these two people their needs their wants their desires not just for sex but like generally from this scene mm-hmm. yeah exactly and the subsequent parts of the scene. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and you know, you have a lot of uh, shirtless men happening and not a lot of, it's, I mean, this is not at the same level of explicitness as like Game of Thrones sex between people who hate each other and it's usually rape. But um, it, it's still like, you know, a certain amount of, of, I don't know, a certain amount of clove lacking, although not, not like I said, like not quite in the extreme. It's not really HBOE. And it, it it felt very, I know that the director of this episode was a man, but again, the female sensibility shot through this entire show really came in through in mm-hmm. this scene and not just because you get a lot of like eyeball of man flesh, but also I think that... It, there was a joyousness to it that, and so many sex scenes on TV are 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 grim, serious, you know, as if as mm. if you're working or something <laughs> instead of playing, and yeah. you never get any any sense off of them that they're doing anything but playing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everybody is everybody is having a good time. Um, To me, this is also. I, yeah, definitely get the mm-hmm. I would say this is Marvel taking the next step too. Like they they put in a lot of eye candy for women in the movies. Like you know, Hemsworth with his shirt off. There's there's something to that, and that's coming from someone who actually right. in the know has said you know they are doing that on purpose. Um, to me, this is almost them growing up in a lot of ways and being like you know we, we've given you the candy, we're gonna kind of put more to it than just a shirtless guy or whatever. Like we want a little bit more adult oomph to it. Yeah. I think that goes to, to definitely goes to Amanda's point about it being like showing you things about the character. Whereas like Thor's trip uh, in uh, age of Ultron, like in the pit of hallucinations with no shirt on is not really something which built the character or, 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 you know, was it any part of development of the character like this very much was. Um, yeah, I I don't know. I, I, I had heard about the, because I had heard about the, like, you know, people were feeling, like, really positive about the sex scenes in this show before I actually watched the show because that had been an early part of the, the media response from people who'd seen the trailer at Comic-Con. I I actually kind of expected more male nudity than there was based on what I had heard. I'm not complaining because that's not <laughs> what I demand of my television, but I do think it indicates how starved people are, I suppose, for any male nudity on a show. If, like, the level of, like, enthusiasm over the sex scenes from the public that I garnered was, like, for this. Do you know what I mean? And it wasn't people talking about, like, these are great, like, character-driven sex, or it's, you know, they weren't talking, they weren't giving it the sort of critical analysis that we were just having in our conversation around it. It seemed like a lot of people were just like, hey, there's, like, you know, like, sex scenes that are, like, well done as opposed to cheesy. And I'm like, yes, that's that's true, but it's not the only, it's not the only thing that's happening in there, and it's also, like, I don't know, I guess it wasn't exactly what I anticipated based on what I, based on the buzz that I was hearing. I'm I'm glad they didn't the camera doesn't um drift into objectifying Luke though because I, I think 
because he's black, that could be a problem, right? If you if it's a mm-hmm. white guy, I, I don't think that this is culturally fraught. But if the if if the one character who gets really objectified by the camera on the show is a black man, I think that that could be a problem as well. So I, I think mm. they may be cognizant of that. Um, you'll see in future episodes why I think that. Like they they give they give some other male characters who are perhaps a little less central to the story or, or a little less human or important to the audience uh, a little bit more of the lingering camera treatment. <laughs> Oh, interesting. I will say to that, like, I totally agree with you in terms of how that could be problematic, but I would also say to that, that, like, it's that, like, if if there's a thing where it's like, oh, well, you can't have a developed character be objectified by the camera because that's dehumanizing, then that, like, that just says everything, you know? That just says everything yeah. about how we treat people. <laughs> but, yeah, that's totally a good insight there. Well, go along um, with the okay the first sex. I was going to say, go along with the first, we, we talked about in previous one, you said that you know you, you expected much more nudity and much more kind of gratuitous sex. It kind of goes to that first episode too, where everyone was like, "Oh, they had this sex scene." It's like, no, I, I really don't think they did. Or you know, it, they, they had a what? Sorry, clearly, I, I didn't hear you. They had what kind what, of sex scene? So in the in the first episode, where everyone kind of came out of it being like, before was saying, "Oh, they absolutely had this sex scene from the television series or from the the comic in the television oh. series." When yeah. it's like they didn't, where you were just talking about like you expected more. Yeah. You know, I expected like it's weird that that aspect of the show has been so weighted and so like so much hyperbole came has come out of it is just bizarre yeah. to me. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, like weird. I don't. I, I, I just, think it gets so weird, being, right? Like the only example that people have. Yeah. 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 Oh, one one of uh, so yeah, sex scene characters testing each other's boundaries. They eventually like actually tell each other a little bit about, you know, their or their power origins, but very very like broadly, you know, in in a way that it sounds like their power origin stories are probably consistent with what the comics say, but really, who knows? Because they just give each other the broadest terms when they're talking about their past. And in fact, when Luke asks her what she's thinking about and like she talks about you know there being people other people maybe there's somebody else's powers she goes what she tells luke is like a true the truth only in the most literal legalistic definition you know what i mean she's only giving him as she is she is up she is obscuring enough to not really open herself up while not technically speaking lying to him. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that, that that observation is somewhat rooted in the comic book a little bit because in the comic book, Jessica has a pretty good idea of what happened, right? And Oh. I, I, I'm not trying to give much away, but I think... Um, I think you're going to find that it's different on the show is all. Oh, interesting. Although I do want to just give a brief shout out out of chronology, though, for the uh, the excellent deployment of Luke Cage's famous 70s catchphrase, Sweet Christmas. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, we cheered in the living I, room. We did the wave on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to hear from like a non-comic reader at some point just to be like, so what did you make of that? But I thought that was such a great usage of it where it didn't sound completely ridiculous. It was like, and I liked that her response was like, sure, I guess so. Um, because that's not a normal explanation to have. But, uh, but yeah, there, that was, um, Oh, boy, where was it? Oh, yeah, Luke, officially this episode, I can say this, Luke has a soundtrack that follows him. Like, there is diegetic music from the bar, but also when he's not in the bar, he also has a soundtrack of, like, consistently, of, like, various forms of blues, be they old school or modern, and sometimes a little bit of old school R&B. Like, old school, I'm like guessing HR. that's going to be the it's, music on his own show. Oh, that would be so great. That would be so great. But it's definitely noticeable to me. Like, I was like, I wonder if this is all just because it's at his bar. But now it's like, no, they just give him this soundtrack because he has his own soundtrack because he's that cool. 
Um, well, speaking of soundtracks, when Justice at the Bodega buying liquor, which, as we have discussed earlier, uh, is not something you can do in New York, but regardless, um, she complains about the guy's talk radio. And it was interesting because I expected the offensive talk radio to be doing mutant bashing because that's what I expect talk radio that's offensive to do in a superhero universe. But, of course, it's not doing that because it's not X-Men. And also because, like, this is not this is not that story. So it wasn't really until the second time that I watched the episode that I actually made out what the offensive talk radio the bodega guy was listening to was and that it was, you know, people beating up on hope. It's interesting to me because it seems the conversation with Jessica and and Luke is one that suggests that this is kind of still an in-between state in the Marvel universe. Like, like, I think the point is that like the average Joe on the street still has a dramatic like underestimation of how many special people there are out there. And I, I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. I assume this is supposed to be happening simultaneously. Cause that's like a big part of the Marvel cinematic universe is like that everything is happening kind of in chronological order of the release dates. Right. So I assume mm-hmm. this is all happening simultaneously with what's going on on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. But I I don't think that people in Hell's Kitchen in New York, like just everyday people like Jessica and Luke, would necessarily have heard a word of that, right? So all they know, and I think Luke says that, is that there's like Captain America and the Incredible Hulk, and then that's like it. Yeah, that's that's what he says. And then so she does her, like, no, not like us, like, very literal response to his question rather than a truthful response to his question. Um, yeah, I, I, and, and, you know, she, she talks about herself as being, like, she's not hiding it, but she's not broadcasting it. I think, and I think he asks her, like, are you out? Like, I think those are the words he uses. Maybe I'm, do you guys remember if he describes it as being out? Uh, let's see if it's in the quotes. There's something open. along that. Yeah. Down the open or something like that. I think he. Yeah. That's one of the few times I think that the show gave in to the directive to draw in themes from the larger universe because they seem very, hmm. and I've seen interviews with the showrunner where she seems very resistant to being part of the larger universe. Right. And, but that's clearly like that conversation definitely echoes what's coming in civil war. Right. It's, it's also interesting in how uh disconnected it is from the the larger Marvel universe. I, I think at this point in Daredevil, you've had references to Age of Ultron, what's happened. Um when they've like they've made some like I think at this point the biggest reference was you know, it said called the Hulk like the big guy and his friends or something like that. Um yeah. and like that's it. Like they're they really have separated this universe from the or at least this series from the rest of what's going on at this point. Well, which is interesting because in the comics that's very much not the case, but that you know, and partially because the comics were about establishing a new superhero in the Marvel universe. And I also probably because they wanted to sell comics and like having her deal with Captain America in the early issues of the series was, you know, helpful for that. But um, definitely is different. Having from, from there, having um, Captain Marvel be replaced with Trish is interesting to me as well. Um, and I, mm-hmm. I know why they had to yeah. do that, but yeah. I, a tiny piece of me will always just think of her as Captain Marvel. <laughs> Oh, I know, I know. I have a thought that I can't share yet because of our spoiler thing, but that I will eventually share, and then everybody will say, hopefully, yes. But we'll get back to that. <laughs> um, oh, speaking of people being out or not, so you know, it you know, Hogarth is when 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 Jess goes to Hogarth and is like, look, this girl's getting crucified in the media. Hogarth is trying to get just to come out as having been a victim. And, you know, we always hear, like, from people who have been sexually assaulted that they're pressured to speak publicly about what's happened to them, even in situations where they don't want to or they don't feel uncomfortable doing so, and then people get angry at them when they don't. So to me that sort of harkens back to people being 
feeling like they're forced to speak about their experiences. I really liked that moment too. And, and I think because of what you said, but I also think that that that's why this show speaks to me because they understand the subtleties of the nuances and the gray areas around this because Hogarth is also right in a way, right? And this is, mm-hmm. and I feel sometimes the politics of this, especially as they get discussed on Twitter and stuff, get a little black <laughs> and white, right? Where people who pressure victims to speak out are the bad guys, and the victims who refuse to speak out are are the good guys, and and we're trying to put this into camps instead of trying to like get out of the good bad dichotomy, right? You know, mm-hmm. it, it, I, I'm not saying that victims should be pressured to speak out or that we shouldn't understand them, but we need to also understand that people who want them to aren't necessarily wrong. They just haven't thought the issue all the way through, or, you know, they're also trying to ask you to kind of suck it up for the greater good. And I think this show actually has a lot to say about the sort of struggle that not just victims have, but all people have about taking care of yourself versus taking care of others and when those things come into conflict. And, you know, I I think, again, this is not meant to be taken in any way, shape, or form as endorsing, like, putting pressure on victims to speak out. But I think that there's also, it it also shows that there's there's a sympathy there to the argument that if you can, you should, because it does help, right? Yeah. I mean, one of the points that I felt like, came up twice in my notes was the whole argument that if you treat victims well, more victims will come forward. Absolutely. You know, like if you show, like two different two different characters basically say, like if you show that people are listening to victims, then other people will say that this will come forward as well. And then the question is whether or not Jessa is a hypocrite or not for, you know, calling on other people to come forward while not coming forward herself. Yeah, in the sense that not being believed. I, I also like the conflict uh, between Hogarth and and Hope on this because when oh, yeah. she uses Trish to set kind of Hope up, like Hope and Trish and all these people are mad at her and they have every right to be because she just basically punished Hope for trying to do the right thing, right, to speak out and fight for herself instead of take some deal or something, right? But like... Mm-hmm. I also, Hogarth is a lawyer. She's actually trying to win this case, and, and that's what a lawyer does. They try to get two narratives out into the public to find out which one is playing better, right? Mm-hmm. And she, like the, like the show says, and she makes Patsy be the one, I'm sorry, Trish, be the one who has to go with a risky one that could make her look like a crazy person, whereas Hogarth gets to be the one who the, the face of the like, more normal argument. I guess. I also, also when you have, you know, when, when, what's his name? When, um, when Kilgrave calls into the radio show and you see the, the, the response that his voice just calls on, on hope and hope, like, you know, you're sitting here, you like want hope to tell Jerry, like, this is him. This is the guy he is calling in right now. And hope can't. And that was just, like, Hope can't actually even say, like, the voice of the man on the radio right now is the proof that this is the person. Like, she can't do it. And, you know, that, and, and Trish, when she goes after, when she's trying to get um, Kilgrave to, to call in, how does she antagonize him? She antagonizes him by challenging his manhood. I mean, that's, like, 100% her intent with how she how she words it. Yeah, I, I found uh, that that was all very interesting. I, I think what I liked the most rewatching that scene is Jessica's reaction to it. And then we get a lot of hints. Like, what's cool about this episode, and we see it in a number of ways, is, like, Jessica spent a lot of time with him. And, again, we have just such fascinating insight to, into what it's like to be a victim of these kinds of crimes, particularly, in this case, domestic violence, which is, like the victim becomes extremely well-versed in what all the red buttons are, right? They learn how to walk Mm -hmm. on eggshells like nobody's business. They become manipulative themselves because they're trying to survive. And we see that 
a number of times, like her ability to tell Officer Simpson, for instance, exactly what he needs to hear in order to sort of break a little bit out of the the Kilgrave spell. Um, yeah, shows that she has. She just knows how this game is played. She has played it a million times. You know, that's it's interesting. I wrote because there's a, there's a trope in comics and in science fiction of uh, the unstoppable bad guy who can only be stopped by letting the bad guy believe that he has won. Like that's definitely a gambit that I've seen used in multiple stories over the years. Um, so when I saw her be saying on the show, like. To, to, to the cop, you killed her. I was like, oh, that's what she's doing. Well played. But I hadn't thought about it until you said it, Amanda, that that's probably what she's done before. She's probably done that gambit many times. Um, and she certainly, that's what she does at the end when the cop jumps off the building. She's like, yep, you jumped off the building. Well, she, when he didn't, when she makes him think he jumped off the building, like, yep, you jumped off the building. You complied with your order now. Um so that, but yeah, that's definitely where that stems from. But it definitely, to me, is also like, oh yeah, this was like a, this is a, a, this is a sci-fi trope. This is how you kill the killbots. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> you, yeah. I don't mean by sending wave after wave with your own men, but that that is one of the other ways to kill the killbots. Um, let's talk about Trish and her home in the, the home invasion from the cop. Like, so when they sent the cop over, I was thinking. Like, maybe he wasn't sent by Kilgrave. But no matter what, you don't let that motherfucker in without a warrant. And she, he just plays her fear of public opinion against her to make her vulnerable. You know, she's gone and she's, like, reinforced her, her apartment. She's a smart woman who knows, like, he has to get a warrant. She's weaponized her body to the extent that she's able. But when he's able to, like say he's going to, you know, put this in the public and make her look bad in public and therefore affect her livelihood, right? Then she has, she puts all of that preparation aside and then makes herself vulnerable to him. And I love how much she kicks his ass because she like seriously kicks his ass. But, uh, you know, ultimately he's able to break through anyway. Yeah, Kilgrave's well, not going to like go grab some small dude. No, he's going exactly. It's like a big ass cop. I mean, but I was I was impressed with her fighting on that episode. I thought they did a great job with that. In terms of like the brutality of the fight and like I mean, how she. I think that's why the machine. Well, just mentions that she she took Krav Maga, like she really states yeah. exactly what she took. I think to give that hint of like, no, I, I, it's going to be a brutal fight if it comes to this. I will jack him up. Um, to me, that was just like the yeah. foreshadowing of like why she could do that. Uh, and for comic fans, like you got to, you know, if if Hellcat cat, learn how to somewhere. So there was yeah. a nice like fandom. Brett, you can't talk about that yet. You can't you can't talk about that right now. The Hellcat yeah. thing. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not really. It's not a spoiler. No, it's not a spoiler. Okay. No, no, no. Okay. Well, because I, 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 I corrected myself when I show if that were to happen. I was like, uh. <laughs> okay. Well, they, okay. they do. They do so, hop around I mean, that. They call her Trish, Patsy, everything in the show. So. Yeah. And then in the comic, they have, they have a fanboy with this comic. Yeah. You know, I think it, I like the door situation too because it's it's kind of like it, it's another bit of nice echoing of the larger themes of the show, which are like, and one of the things that I just find so incredibly effective about this show is like, there's so much in our culture. There's so much victim blaming, right? Like if if you're a victim of of these of gendered violence, it's always like you didn't do enough. You didn't defend yourself well enough whatever. What I think a lot of that fails to understand is that there is nobody that's 100% effective. There's nothing. Like, the, everybody has a weak spot. Everybody has a vulnerability. Everybody has some button that they that like a clever abuser can push. And if you think you're immune, that might even make you more vulnerable, right? And I think uh -huh. that Trisha has built up this fortress and learned how to fight. 
and the fact that some just some dude just punches through that like it's paper to an extent like just shows that like abuse is the abuser's fault at the end of the day it is yeah. not the victim's fault for not protecting themselves well enough at a certain point what could she have done right i, I right. kind of enjoyed the because even if she hadn't let, even if she hadn't let him in the, Kilgrave would have found a way he just would have that's his power set you know? My th- my thing is I like the fact that she has gone to this extent and she's got the safe room and the emergency or the security system and the protected door and Jessica literally her door is like being held together by like roaches going hand in hand like it's just splinters <laughs> at this point. Yet Jessica's the safe of the two in reality like it's not you know things aren't going down in her apartment it's going down in in. Trisha's apartment that's the fortress, mm. um, which I thought was kind of yeah. was an interesting thing of the in that episode because the door like I Jessica's mean, door has played such a role up to this point in the first three episodes, and just breaks her own lock again in this episode because she doesn't have time to deal with like getting the payment to the locksmith. She like the door was fixed, but she couldn't like you know, wait to deal with the locksmith guy so she broke her own lock again. I mean, breaking your own lock's not as bad as breaking your whole door, but it's the first step. I wouldn't be surprised if in the next episode she doesn't break her whole door again, you know, just to keep things chaotic. Um, I I over-relate to Jessica on this because, and I think that this happens to a lot of, like, victims of rape and sexual or uh, sexual assault and domestic violence. I don't know. I don't have statistics on it. But I think a lot of the time, like, the fact that it's often somebody that you invited into your life or somehow mm. met by happenstance or something causes you to, like, start to realize that all the locks and security systems in the world <laughs> only protect against 10% of violence, Right. <laughs> Yeah. They don't do yeah. shit for 90% of violence and that can cause a certain amount of of can I curse on the show? Please, <laughs> yes. as much as you want. Yeah, that can cause that can in some cases cause a certain fuck it attitude. Like that does all lock what is that going to protect me against, you know? Mhm. Yeah. Yeah, I think the show is very eloquent about how they present that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, and, you know, you finally, this is the episode where you finally see Jessica, like Trish tell Jessica that she has been training and it's been working out. And, you know, she, she like goes and like shows off that skill to Jess and she's very proud of herself and she's, she's not wrong to be because she's worked very hard, but ultimately like there are sociopaths and they will find a way. And, you know, it's not about you. It's about them. Um, so that was my thought on that. The oh gosh, Jess, sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say the the big thing I think also is we finally, I mean it's it's far ahead. I don't know if we're how much we're skipping through, but this is the first real uh, real episode that we've seen Kilgrave to like a larger extent. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. you know he was kind of in the very end of last episode, but we didn't get much of him. Like here we see him standing and how he's interacting and and just being nonchalant over everything he's doing. Yeah, that this is his life. Um it's it's always been this way for him. And or at least since, you know, he was a kid anyway. And that's pretty chilling. You know, I, I saw some people on Twitter make a really good point that like he's just such a a good stand-in for the way that, like, manipulative, good-looking, charming people can sort of drift through life without ever getting any real challenge. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. He's so blasé about telling the cop to go walk off to the side of the building, like, the other, oh, God. I mean, Jess, Jess went there just to try to do recon. You know, she looks down into that room and she says, I see you out loud. And she's very clearly there to do recon to prepare for how she's going to go after him. She only gets herself involved, like, prematurely because she has to go save this cop's life, basically. At least that's how I read it. 
And then he runs her through a gauntlet of regular people and just has to go and give like 80 people concussions, basically. She's just giving people a concussions machine, which is essentially how superhero comics work anyway, with a great deal of concussions and therefore long-term brain damage upon victims of said concussions. But like, yeah, like Kilgrave just builds this gauntlet out of the family that he uses to delay her. Yeah, I'm like, thinking about how he's forced, he weaponizes them. What, say, what do you think of her like choice? He weaponizes them. Her choice to go after Kilgrave or to go save the cop instead of going after Kilgrave. I mean, of course, you know. And also self-preservation. Like, we're we're under, like... It's extremely clear at this point that simply being in a room with Kilgrave is the end of yourself, right? At least for a while. And Mm. there's, like, being sucked into his orbit alone is dangerous, which, again, is just a fantastic metaphor for domestic violence. (laughs) Like... Uh, like this I can lean on research there is a significant amount of research that shows that like the number one way to get a victim out of her abuser's um, you know power is to literally just put physical and communication distance between them if if there is a blackout of communication if there is no talking there is no seeing if there is no no communication for like six months to a year often like she becomes herself again and she starts to really get independence again. And, and that, that loosens the hold he has over her and often loses, loosens his obsession over her as well. And like the sort of emotional reality of like, she just needs to know that she knows that she just can't even be in a room with a guy. I think it's fascinating. Yeah, that's, 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 that's very true. Um, and actually thinking about what you said right about the, the question of who do you go after, it brings me back to the hospital scene where she's first going to, scoping out the hospital to try to get the, to try to get the, um, the anesthesia. And she says to herself, like, how many people is she comfortable with having to give concussions to in order to get the medicine? You know, she asks, like, oh, well, how far along in her pregnancy is that? Is the pregnant woman? She counts one or two people. I was like, uh. Um, but, like, the whole question of, you know, because at least briefly, you know, Jess, like, recognizes that giving people concussions is really bad for them and doesn't want to have to give a ton of people concussions. Um, and, you know, she only stops considering how many people she's willing to concuss in order to steal the drug um, when she sees the cop there. And she's like, oh, that would just escalate things more. At least that's how I interpreted the fact that she drops the question once the cop shows up. But that's like her big internal dialogue is how many people is she willing to risk in the short term in order to save people in the long term, you know? I think that calculus is a really significant part of what all superhero stories are about. Well, I don't know about all, but but it's certainly a frequent theme in superhero stories. Any thoughts on that, guys? It tells you a lot about Jessica, too, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I think one of the most fun parts about her character is that she's definitely absorbed this, like, low self-esteem. And we're not, I mean, it's not entirely clear to me that she always had low self-esteem, but as she stands right now, she hates herself. She she thinks she's an asshole. Um, She says that bluntly. Um, She doesn't apologize Uh for it, which I like. But she's not an asshole. Like, she's just, she's a person who actually thinks about these things, which already puts her in, like, you know, on a different moral plane than, say, like, a Tony Stark character, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's going to be my thing is she's the first one that actually thinks of this stuff. Um, You know, how much damage does the Avengers do or have they done in in each of the, each of their movies and all together, like you, yes, they go on and they save um, individuals, but I don't really think they think of like the greater impact when she's clearly thinking about every little thing she does, even down to the like, well, if I punch this person, is you know, what, what happens at that point? Um, 
I, I think that's it's yeah. interesting that out of all the characters, she's the one that's really considering it. It you also know, contrasts her. I, I take for good. Oh, I was just going to say it, it, it also it, it, it draws, draws a huge contrast between her and Kilgrave. He's characterized as a, a he's obviously a sociopath who just cannot even empathize with other people. Whereas she has an abundance of empathy, and in fact, I think some of the reasons she pulls away from other people is she can't turn it off enough. Yeah, certainly with Luke, it seems to be the case in that, and her own sense of guilt and also a sense of feeling unworthy um, because of what happened with his wife, which was an interesting reveal this episode, because surely I had assumed that his wife had been killed by the bus, and she felt guilty because she'd been collateral damage. Until this episode, we didn't. I mean, I can't imagine anybody would have thought until this episode that she had, that she had been the boss essentially that had killed his wife with the, with the force of her of getting hit. You know. Um, how did that impact so that, that reveal? Episode. Yeah, how did that reveal change your thoughts about her watching him and sleeping with him, or did it at all? Uh, it made the former more sympathetic and the latter, like you understood why she hates herself because it's a very, very bad thing to do to sleep with him under the circumstances. It's a very, very bad thing to do. But watching him, she, watching him, make, it makes watching him interesting because you realize that she just felt like some ownership over him. I, I, not like owning him, but like, he lost a wife and she feels responsible. So she was trying to take care of him in the only way that she knew how, and she didn't know that he was a superhero and he could take care of himself. So she just added this thing to her, like this unpaid work. Like I have to follow this guy around and make sure that nobody hurts him for who knows how long she thought she had to do this. Totally. That's totally right. And one thought actually is at the very end of the episode when she, when, when she looks and sees the photos that Kilgrave had, the monitoring photos, um, she is looking to see where Kilgrave would have taken the photo of her, you know, stalking Luke from. And is it, are we supposed to take it as an open question that she might think that Kilgrave manipulated things so that she would meet Luke? Because I think that she might be thinking that. I don't know. It's sort of hard for me to read. No, it's just a straight up who's watching her. And how did he get those photos? I think it's that. I don't. She knows Kilgrave well enough, I think, to know that he wouldn't actually game it out that way. Because mm. he Kilgrave thinks he owns her, but he doesn't really know her well enough to know that she would like Luke. Or I guess to be that many steps ahead. Yeah. Huh. Um, the other... What was the other reveal? Well, I guess just we yeah, we saw the... We see the full scene of, of... I mean, that scene was like, right, that she flashes back to when she first sees Kilgrave in this episode and we first see him full face. That was the last time she saw him was... was you know, when she kills Luke's wife and then has the bus get crashed into him, right? So yeah. her brain is sort of yeah. picking up from that last signal, essentially, that, that he'd broadcast to her. Um, and I thought that, like, how this show sort of showed you fragments of that prior to this scene and then only does the reveal in this one, I thought that was pretty well done. I actually was wondering how long, how how far into the series it was going to go before we had her see him and have an actual like moment of face to face recognition. I was not sure how long they were going to pull it out to. I was so glad that they didn't do it in the first episode because I wanted to have that build up, but I really wasn't sure when they were going to have that moment of payoff of her and him seeing each other. I think three episodes in was exactly the right timing, like. It gave you enough time, like, to really explore his power over other people so that by the time you see him, you've got a really well-established idea of what kind of monster he is. 
And I think that was doubly important since, you know, he's Doctor Who and like, so he has <laughs> that to overcome in terms of, he has to seem scary. <laughs> and you're, now you're a Doctor Who person, right? Yeah, yeah, I like Doctor Who. So do you have any like thoughts about like how this performance, you know, as distinct from like, does he, is he holding his voice in a different way or like, I don't really, well, I know Brett, you're a big Doctor Who person too. Like I, I don't have any particular Whovian insight into this performance from him or into his work at all, really. If you guys have any thoughts you want to. Well, his Doctor Who is really cute. Like, I mean, he's, he's fun and, and Kilgrave is, a little bit more buttoned up and proper, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but and you'll I, I, do you watch Doctor Who? You watch Doctor Who, right? I no, I've only seen maybe four. I I've seen maybe four episodes of Doctor Who, or four or five episodes ever. Well, well, he they have a they have a few extremely subtle Doctor Who jokes throughout the show. Not oh, in this no, episode. That's terrible. No, no, they're really oh, subtle man. and they're they they're well played. They're extremely dark. <laughs> okay, good. So long as they're extremely dark, I yeah, would not they, be okay they, with cute Doctor Who jokes. No, they're they're actually just amazing because they're they're messed up in every which way. Like they're they're kind of hilarious that way. But um, you know, I think that. I've seen a couple people make a really good point that like there's actually kind of an eerie thread between the two characters, which is like Doctor Who, especially the version of Doctor Who that David Tennant played, which kind of became canon for Doctor Who there on out, is somebody who literally does walk into a room and tell people how it's going to be, and that's how it is, right? And on on Doctor Who, that's treated as like fun (laughs) on this show it's treated as psychotic which is sounds much more accurate you know his first performance i actually think it is it's more similar to what he did in broadchurch than doctor who with the the dark moody um yeah, just the dark and moodiness about it. Like it, it's weird that he's gone from the like these three three things is almost like darker with each iteration, uh, which makes me feel mm. completely frightened as to what he does. Because I mean, Broadchurch was pretty like morose and depressing, um, and here like it's it's even I think more so of like that that character. Um, so the it, it's interesting. I, the performance has more in common with Broadchurch than than with Doctor Who. Well, probably, but the characters I think have a couple alarming things in common. Um, the other thing is that Kilgrave, like Doctor Who, sees himself as a loner, and yet he does occasionally pick female, young female companions at random off the street. So, ah. <laughs> uh. Yeah, it's a common outlook. Yeah, I, I would love to view this character as, like, a dark take on, like, what it would be to actually have, like, Doctor Who in the real world. And, like, that would be a very Bendis, you know, actually kind of way to handle it as well, being being the writer of the comic. Hmm. How these powers would work in the real world, et cetera. Oh, I want to talk really briefly about how she how she treats... Her neighbor, um, what is his name, Miles? Malcolm. Malcolm, thank you. How she treats yeah. Malcolm. You so remember Malcolm, the character him, in the comic too, right? I don't remember him. He's the, like, nerdy white kid that, like, fanboys her and camps out in her office and answers her phones against her will. So they changed oh, the character a lot. He, I see. So, like, you know, generally speaking, like, you know, early in the episode, she certainly protects, she treats him, considering he shows up in her apartment and eating her food while she's trying to sleep, she treats him very well until, you know, like, she stands up for him when asshole, like, holier-than-thou bicyclist plows into him, 
you know, she makes sure he gets back into his apartment safely. She treats him really well until she has the conversation with creepy neighbor who's obsessive with her, um, where the creepy neighbor is like, everyone's a little bit racist and jumps to conclusions. And then next yeah, thing you know, that statement? oh, he's, he's such a, that care, that guy, I don't, I, that neighbor, um, but so so then and 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 right after that is when you see her taking advantage of Malcolm because she is taking advantage of Malcolm when she brings him to the hospital to use him as a distraction and she pushes him over an end table, you know. And then the look I mean, on his face when she when she leaves, he like looks at her with looking so sad and violated. It just broke my heart. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because a lot of the fun of watching this show is realizing that Jessica's really clever and she's always like two steps ahead of everybody else, right? But that was her being clever in the worst way, right? Like she's like, oh, that's a really good point. Everyone's racist, so I can use that. Yep. That's exactly how I read that. And I'm, I'm just glad that they gave him his moment to like look at her like looking sad and betrayed which he was um it made me sad and of course she got her drug <laughs> which she then used on Patsy it is so dangerous to go around dosing people with with like heavy duty um whatever that shit is that knocks you out like how does she even know she didn't kill her I guess, like, she just, I mean, I took that as, like, yet another moment where we find that, like, she's, I mean, she's reckless, but she's clever at the same time. I think that's just a very cool characterization. Like, you see that combination in a lot of, like, hero shows, but rarely do you see it portrayed so convincingly. (laughs) Or by a woman, I'm guessing, right? (laughs) Or by a woman, I suppose, yeah. Yeah. So I think we kind of worked our way through the episode. Um, are there any other points that folks want to make sure that we uh, hit on before we close out tonight? So, I watch it. Like I've, each time I've watched this in the series as a whole. I mean, this episode there's a lot of sex in it, and there's more sex in future episodes did either of Uh you like feel like this is they kind of were like hey we could totally do this and almost overdid it at points where it was just almost too much not in this episode certainly but i can't speak to the rest of the show um i don't think think so i mean i've seen the the entire series and this is the most sex in any episode that i can think of so really hmm I mean, there are a couple of sex scenes after this, but um, I, I think they're mostly kind of played for laughs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. No, I think it was. I think it was good. Um, you know, I tend to. I tend to fall on the like side of like I don't really care if there's a lot of sex on TV because there's a lot of sex in life, and so. You know, it seems a little inauthentic to me to like portray people as. Um, less sexual than they actually are. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I only mind it if you're not advancing the story or advancing the characters, if you're just like, okay, we're just going to put the story on halt for five minutes to watch these people get at it because they're hot. Um, but, you know, I think that I, I, I liked it, and I, I liked that they advanced the characters. I liked that they showed Jessica is capable of having fun normal times that there's a part of her life that's fun and normal and very likable because otherwise I think um, she would just be sad and suffering or angry all the time and then that would be a problem in and of itself alright fair enough cool yeah that sounds good to me that sounds good to me um, so I guess why don't we wrap up? Uh, 
for folks, just so you know, we're we're going to be going on with episode four next week, um, which is December. Are we tipping December 7th? Yeah, I think we are. December 7th at 7 p.m. with Scott Eric Kaufman, returning guest, and Sarah Rasher, also returning guest. Um, We always like to make sure that we give our guests an opportunity to let our listeners know where they can find you on the Internet. So, Amanda, do you want to tell everybody where they can find you on the Internet? Like, in a good way, not a creepy way, like your Twitter (laughs) handle and such. (laughs) Yeah, um, I'm... I'm a politics writer for Salon, so you can read me there. And my Twitter handle is at Amanda Marcotte, all one word. We'll be tweeting that out for folks again as well, although it actually has also just gone out from our account. Um, yeah. Cool. Uh, anything else? Anything? No, no, no. I mean, any any other <laughs> points anyone wants to hit, hit before kind of wrapping up? I'm good. All good. All right. Cool. Uh, well, thank Amanda, you. thanks for thank you for joining us. It's been awesome. It's always great to hear um, other what other people think about uh, the geek world and you know, these sort of issues and this type of series. So, very cool. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a blast. Yeah, appreciate it, and uh, thank you for coming on again. Have a great week. Yes. You too. <laughs> All right. Uh, so yeah, so Alana, you said that we've got next Monday another episode, uh, which will be episode four. And I th- are we doing a double next week as well? Yeah, we are. We're also ta- we're also taping on the tenth. Yes. Um, the tenth, which is the Thursday. Thursday. Yep. And that's when we're gonna have Logan Dalton from the Rainbow Hub and from um, Pop Pop Optic and from the podcast Fantheon. He's been doing a detailed reread of all of the Jessica Jones comics for Rainbow Hub. Um, so he is like the most knowledgeable dude about these comics who I can think of right now. And um, also be joined by Janine, who's recently started blogging at Graphic Policy um, and is really enthusiastic about the show as well. Yes, it's going to be, it will be fun. Uh, so yeah, uh, for those who are listening, you'll be able to, Check those episodes out. Uh, they'll be posted up on Blog Talk Radio probably tomorrow. Um, if not, definitely this weekend. And, of course, we'll have it up on our site. And then for folks who want to re-listen to this episode or share it around, um, you will be able to catch that on iTunes a little bit after it wraps up and Stitcher as well as a little bit after it wraps up. And then on SoundCloud, it will be loaded up tomorrow, and we will be hosting up both episodes from this week uh, on Graphic Policy uh, tomorrow as well. So you will be able to catch tonight's episode and the previous episode and one nice handy post um, and catch up for those who might have missed them. But uh, as always, thank you for listening. We appreciate it. Uh, you can catch us every single day at graphicpolicy.com. Uh, And, of course, we're on Twitter, Facebook, all at Graphic Policy, keeping it nice and consistent. So until next Monday, thanks for listening. I'm Brett. I'm Ilana. Keep it geeky.